Hey everyone, welcome back to Tiana Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Sam Levens. Um, he's an associate professor in the philosophy department at the University of Haifa, all the way over in Israel. Um, he's an Orthodox rabbi and a Jewish educator. Uh, we're going to talk about Hasidic idealism. So Sam, thank you so much for joining me. I'm super pumped for today's conversation. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Yeah, so you think started, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do and kind of get you like what got you interested in things like Hasidic idealism? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, um, um, oh, sorry about that uh, ding on my computer. I'm a, um, I'm a, an analytical philosopher. I, I teach uh, various areas of philosophy at the University of Haifa. My first book was on Bertrand Russell and, and the nature of meaning. So I've done philosophy of language, metaphysics, this period of philosophy called early analytic philosophy, which is, you know, the, the, the early days of the analytic movement, Frege, Bertrand Russell, Wittgenstein. Um, but since, and I grew, up, I grew up in a Jewish home, since uh, teenage years I've been religious and practicing Orthodox Jew. Um, after I finished my PhD, I went to rabbinical school for a few years and uh, became a rabbi. And it was only really then that I got into uh, philosophy of religion in a serious way, kind of bringing together my um, research and analytic philosophy with my, my interests and my faith positions and my faith commitments. Um, the Hasidic idealism thing kind of happened by accident, really. I um, I was doing a postdoc at the University of Notre Dame uh, that has a really great record in philosophy and religion. You, you may have interviewed people from there. Um, and um, whilst I was playing around with some ideas during my postdoc there, I figured out a way of making sense of some of these things that I'd heard Hasidic rabbis teaching that to me had seemed contradictory or, or it didn't make sense. Um, and it turned out, oh, I can make sense of them with this wacky idea called Hasidic idealism. I, you know, I called it Hasidic idealism. And, and I didn't really believe in it at first. I was just kind of offering it as a way of making sense of what these other people were saying. Um, but the more I ended up defending it, uh, the more convincing and compelling it uh, appeared to me. Mm. So, like, what then are the roots? Because obviously, I think a lot of listeners here might be familiar with, like, broadly, like, idealism. Um, but, yeah. like, Hasidic idealism, like, the Hasidic tradition, especially to, like, a largely, like, um, Christian slash, like, atheistic audience I have, like, what on earth is going on here? Um, yeah. So what are, what are the roots of, like, the Hasidic tradition and, like, Hasidic idealism? Well, it's kind of interesting. So, yeah, some of, most of your viewers or many of your viewers will know what idealism is. For those who don't, um, um, idealism is the view that um, the mental or, or mind or ideas, perhaps, uh, you know, ideas of minds are the most fundamental sorts of substance. Uh, you know, so the materialist on the other side says, no, physical material, physical matter is the most fundamental type of substance. The dualist says, no, there's mind and there's matter. And the idealist says, no, the, 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 the idealist agrees with the materialist. There's only kind of one thing that's fundamental, uh, but they dis disagree about what it is and they say something mental. Now, um, Hasidism um, was a kind of a Jewish uh, revivalist movement of, of pietistic Jews in, in Eastern Europe, uh, in the in the 1700s, it began um, with the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of Hasidism, who was actually, uh, his life overlapped with uh, George Barclay, Bishop Barclay, who 
who's kind of one of the the most important kind of defenders of idealism in in the history of uh, of Western philosophy, Christian philosophy. Berkeley was obviously Christian. Um, um, one wonders sometimes whether these ideas are somehow in the air, right? That at the same time as uh, as Berkeley was putting forward his uh, his views, his metaphysics, this movement was growing in Eastern Europe, which I imagine was completely uh, isolated from what was happening in in uh, in in academia in Britain, uh, which is where uh, Berkeley was based. Um, but they came up with similar ideas in the sense that uh, the Hasidic movement, which was, like I said, a revivalist, pietistic, um, it, it even had uh, elements that you might in the Christian world rec recognize as kind of charismatic, uh, you know, uh, um, um, in its in its worship and, and, and uh, its religious life. Uh, but its intellects, it turns out, many of them were uh, deeply interested in in a type of idealism, uh, the, the, of a wacky form, uh, which I'll say in a nutshell, this is at least how I understand what, what many of them are saying, is that um, the entire physical universe in which we live is something like, uh, or, or is located in the mental life of God. Um mm which is not all that far away from, we might get onto the differences, but it's not all that far away from the sort of thing you'd hear Bishop Barclay say as well. Mm. So we're looking at like idealism and like Hasidic idealism. We're going to be looking at the idea that like kind of like everything um, is kind of located within the mind of God, like all of reality and everything like that. That's kind of mm -hmm. the main idea. Yeah, that's, that's the main idea. The, 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 the wackiest part of it, which, which, um, the Hasidim, as I understand them, uh, do not share with Barclay. Barclay doesn't go this far. That the Hasidim are more extreme than Barclay, is that even your mental life, right? Barclay would kind of tell you that the world is a bit like the Matrix. If you've seen the movie, it's a useful philosophical uh, um, analogy. The Matrix movie. You've got all these humans who are plugged into a virtual reality, right? Mm -hmm. um, the world that we see around us that looks like a material world is nothing more than the, uh, the mental images that the, um, the computer programmers are kind of sending into our heads. Right. Mm. Um, now what's real on that view? Well, what's real on that view is I suppose the computer software that's running, uh, that's running the virtual reality world. Um, the code, uh, the computers that are, that are running the virtual reality thing, but also the people, the people are real. It's just, you know, when they see another person, all they're seeing, you know, like if you and me were playing um, um, a multiplayer uh, computer game and you bump into my character, I bump into your character, you can have real interactions. It's just you're not really seeing me. You're seeing like the computerized representation of me, right? But for mm -hmm. Barclay, uh, for Barclay, distinct human beings are are so to speak tied into uh, this world that god is projecting into our minds god is like the computer programmer but the things which are ultimately real are god his ideas and all of the people plugged into the world that that barclay's god is kind of um uh ge generating for them the hasidic idealism idealists go further they want to say that in some regard, even you and me 
are just ideas in the mind of God, right? Mm. Even your mental life is uh, is something that that, that ultimately um, is the mental life of God, or some compartment, so to speak, of the mental life of God as His mind. So in the Hasidic tradition, and you talked about Berkeley, and he wants to say something like, like you and me, Sam, like, like in some sense we are distinct. Um, like we still live with like within God's mind. Um, there's yeah. like a distinct like person or human person. Whereas like in the Hasidic tradition, what's happening is you're kind of like saying, no, it's just really God and His ideas. So like us and like our like our mental like that's just really like an idea of God. Yeah, yeah. So let let's look at it a little bit. Um, you're right to, to push me on this, and, and basically, in, in, in broad brushstrokes, you're saying uh, something right. I just want to clarify a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, for yeah. Barclay, for Barclay, you and I are distinct. We're also distinct from God, right? God created us, but we're not God, right? And you and I are distinct, and we, we it's like we're players in this virtual reality that God's created for us to play in, right? But you're real, I'm real, He's real, and we're all distinct. Uh, as I understand the Hasidic idealists. Um, you and I are still distinct, but we're distinct ideas in the mind of God. So there's mm-hmm. a sense in which you and I are distinct, but neither of us are all that distinct from God because you're an idea in the mind of God and I'm an idea in the mind of God. Okay, not the same idea, but um, we're both ideas in the mind of God. Mm. Okay, yeah, I think it's your So, like, what does that make us then, Sam? Like, in the, like, a aesthetic picture of the world, are we just, like, fictional characters? Like, you talk about, yeah. like, like Frodo in the Lord of the Rings and be like, Hey, like, sure. In one sense he exists, but like, in, like in reality, you don't want to say like Frodo is like a human being like you and me. Um, does this kind of you relegate us to like becoming kind of like Frodo? Um, yeah. So yeah, think? that's exactly right. And, and then, and then um, people will make complaints and they're right to make complaints. Right. So you say, well, if I'm just a fictional character uh, in the mind of God, it's like God's dreaming. Up. One way of understanding the picture is that God is dreaming up the universe. And he's dreaming up everything that happens in it, including your mm-hmm. thoughts and my thoughts and our interactions. So you're like, well, then I'm just like Frodo in the mind of Tolkien. You say, well, first of all, I'm upset because do I have any free will? Right? Mm-hmm. Frodo doesn't have free will. Frodo just does whatever Tolkien says he's going to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, what's the point of my trying to do things because I don't have free will. And also like, are you saying I'm not real? I don't exist. Like that's like offensive or something. Those are legitimate complaints that one could mm-hmm. raise with these Hasidic thinkers. Let me just be very clear for your list, for your listeners who I imagine they're not many Jewish listeners per se. Um, th- this, this isn't a mainstream Jewish view. It's not like this is what Judaism believes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Hasidism is a, is a sect of Judaism. It's an important stream of Jewish thought, but it's not, you know, it's not, this isn't a consensus view. Of Jews. It's a wacky view. Um, I can try and explain to you, if you like, how I, um, how I respond to these complaints that people raise. You know, like, well, mm-hmm. I'm just like Frodo, so what's the point of living? The basic response is like this. Well, actually, Frodo does have free will. He has free will in the story in which he lives, right? When we talk about Frodo, we have to be really careful. Some things we say about him are true relative to the story, and some of the things we say about him are true, you know, outside of the story. For instance, is Frodo a figment of Tolkien's imagination? Well, no, not in the story is not. Right. But yes, he is outside of the story. So when we make claims about Frodo, we have to be really careful. Are we speaking relative to the story or are we speaking from a perspective that's broader than the story? 
So too mm -hmm. for Hasidic idealism, when we make claims about people or things in our natural environment, we have to be very clear. Are we making this claim relative to the story that God's imagining? Or are we making these, this claim from some sort of broader perspective? So um, relative to the dream that God is dreaming or the story that God is telling, you and I have free will, just like Frodo does. Mm -hmm. If you wrote in an English literature exam, you know, why does Frodo do what he does? You know, oh, because Tolkien said he did. That's a bad answer, right? Yeah. Because uh, relative to the story, he made his own decisions. He has his own, you know. Um, so you have free will. I have free will. This is a strange story we live in because God, who's the author of the story, also appears as a character in the story. He, in the story, he split the Red Sea and, and led the Jews out of, of, of Egypt, right? In the story... Mm -hmm. Um, he punishes those of us who, who choose to do bad things and he rewards those of us who choose to do good things. You say, well, how's that fair? Well, it's fair because in this story, we do have free choice. And God, as a character in this story, is the one who rewards those who freely do good and punishes those who freely do bad. All the Hasidic idealist is saying is, oh, by the way, there's another perspective on, on reality. In some sense, it's more fundamental. It's like mm -hmm. a God's eye perspective. And from that transcendent God's eye perspective, all of this isn't really real. All of this is 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 in God's imagination. Hmm. That's interesting. Like I'm trying to like understand. Like I, like it makes sense to me. Like I, like I'm like yes. Like I, I can see like conceptually what's going on here, where we have like this idea of like um like like everything like existing within God's mind, and us like being God's ideas, and this is a story that mm -hmm. like God has written and like mm -hmm. put Himself into as well. Mm -hmm. um, and like like do you like what do you think like you get into like the nitty-gritty of like free will like you know as like libertarians and capitalists and determinists like do you yeah. think like you can have a libertarian sense of like human freedom and like hold to like this like Hasidic idealism because to me that's the one part where i'm like oh, good i don't know this is this like, is like, where i got to Hasidic idealism because there was this one Hasidic thinker called uh mordechai yosef lena who who's known sometimes as the as the ishpitzer rebbe because he was the rabbi of a town in poland called ishpitz um well, that's what it's called in Yiddish anyway. I don't know what it's called in Polish. Um, he um, he sometimes says human beings have no free will. Free will is an illusion. And in other times, he says we've got radical free will. So sometimes he sounds like a hard determinist. And sometimes he sounds like a libertarian. And I'm putting my hair out trying to understand what he's saying. And then I realized that for the Ishpitzer, Whenever we talk about humans, we have to be clear what perspective we're talking from, just like with Frodo, right? Mm. So in your English literature exam, you'd be wrong to say that Frodo doesn't have free will. Frodo's not an automaton. Frodo does things because he chooses to, right? Mm -hmm. And he has libertarian free will. That's true relative to the story. But of course, from some broader perspective outside of the story, you know, Frodo doesn't have free will. Frodo barely exists. Frodo is like some kind of figment of the popular imagination created by by Tolkien, who does whatever the text says he does. So there's a sense in which um, a hard determinism is true relative to one perspective, and um, hardcore libertarian freedom is true relative to another perspective. And mm. they're not contradicting because they're just they're just they're, they're different. The different perspectives mm. um now you might say and this is i think maybe what you're kind of uncomfortable about say yeah but surely like the fundamental one is the real one 
Mm-hmm. And if fundamentally I'm just a figment of God's imagination, then my, my free will is just an illusion. I just I would want to push back on that, Zach, because I'd want to say, like, look, if you're a theist, surely there's a sense in which you think God is more real than you. Mm. Right? God is the foundation yeah. of reality. Right? There's a sense in which. So if all you're saying is you want to be as real as God and you want your freedom to be as real as God, I'd say, Zach. Heresy, right? Nothing's <laughs> as real as God. Rather, your your existence has a degree of reality, just like in a sense, Frodo has a degree of reality, right? He has even less reality than we do, but he has a degree of reality. We have a degree of reality, and our freedom has a degree of reality. And I'd also say this: what's true relative to our story tends to be more important than what's true fundamentally. And I can explain this with a little illustration. Sherlock Holmes, in his story, he lives on 200 and, or what is it, 121B Baker Street or something. I can't remember the address, but he has um, an address. Uh, um, 122B Baker Street, let's say. I think that's it. Um, now, Baker Street's a real street in London. And actually, during the years that Sherlock Holmes was supposedly active, Baker Street wasn't long enough to have 122 units on it, hmm. right? Um, now, is this something... Now, by the way, Baker Street's much longer, and there is 122B Baker Street, and, and there's like a Sherlock Holmes-like statue there and whatever. It's very nice. But during the years when he was fictionally operative, Baker Street wasn't that long and didn't have uh, 122 houses on it. So then you ask, well, is this something Sherlock Holmes should worry about? Well, no, he shouldn't worry about it because... it. It's the house was real in his story. He has a key to it in his pocket. It's not like he has to work. Oh, outside of my story, this house isn't real. What matters to him is what's true in his story. Likewise, mm. what matters to us most of the time is what's true relative to our story. And what's true relative to the story in which we live is that we have free will. All the Hasidic idealist is offering us is like a kind of transcendent perspective. We can sometimes catch a glimpse of reality, so to speak, from God's point of view. And when we do that, we recognize how unreal, so to speak, anything is other than God. Mm. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. So thanks, Sam. One of the things you talk about, like in your paper, is um, in your work is like Clark Kent and Superman and like how that's gonna help us like deduce some like things about Hasidic idealism. So can you talk about like what's going on here with Clark Kent and Superman and how it's yeah, gonna yeah, help that, us like unravel and... some of this mystery? <laughs> I'll try and explain. And actually, um, this might be interesting to your Christian listeners who who grapple with um, um, the Trinity. I was trying to grapple with the problem of Jewish mysticism that some Jewish rationalists have have compared to the Trinity. Okay, so in mm. the Jewish mystical tradition, there's this there's this view that God, as He's manifest in the world, manifests under ten guises you might say there are 10 main attributes that we uh, through which we experience god or something like that and these mm. these attributes are called the spherot it's god's mercy god's justice um god's sense of truth god's beauty uh, uh, there are all these different there are 10 of them and they interact in interesting ways so sometimes it even looks like they're fighting with one another because god's mercy is sometimes in conflict with god's um with god's um justice you know and and they're perceived of as, as almost being like these 10 independent characters 
right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, the mystics tend to say that even though they look like there are 10 of them, really they're one and all of them are God. Mm. And the, 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 the critics of Jewish mysticism within Judaism said, you can't say that, right? Uh, it, you make it sound like there are 10 gods, right? Uh, there's only one God. And mm. in fact, you know, obviously Judaism is classically mainstream. Judaism is Unitarian, not Trinitarian or anything else Aryan. It's Unitarian. There's, mm -hmm. there's one God and one person in the Godhead. Um, and the critics of Jewish mysticism who didn't like this talk of Sfirot, they would even say, you think Christianity is bad with its three? You guys have 10 of them. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I try to argue that, that um, Hasidic idealism um, could help the Jewish mystic in general to defend this doctrine of the Sfirot. Maybe it could help the... Um, the, the, the Trinitarian also with the doctrine of the Trinity, maybe not, because maybe, as you'll hear, the solution I'm about to offer sounds a bit too close to what Christians call modalism, which is apparently a heresy. But I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, an expert in, in Christology and, and, and Christian theology. Um, but it, it goes via Clark and 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 and, um, and Superman. I want to I, I want you to imagine uh, the following um, thought experiment. OK. Lois Lane, she doesn't know, right, that Superman and Clark Kent are the same person. So she, that what, one of the things she doesn't know is that actually the words Clark Kent and the word Superman, they refer to the same person. She mm -hmm. doesn't know that. In, there's a sense, therefore, in which those two phrases actually mean the same thing. She doesn't know that, right? She doesn't know that Clark Kent just means Superman and that Superman just means Clark Kent. Um, now I want you to imagine that she writes a story one day in which, because she's got a bit of a crush on Clark Kent, she's also got a bit of a crush on Superman, she's a bit conflicted, so she writes a story called, I call it Loving Lois, and in this story, um, Superman and Clark Kent have loads of fights about Lois Lane, okay, and in the end, Superman picks Clark Kent up and throws him through the window in a fit of jealous rage, um, well, you get these weird things are happening in this thought experiment. Okay. Mm -hmm. The word Clark Kent, the phrase Clark Kent refers to A. The word Superman refers to A, right? A equals A, they're the same person, right? And yet, in the story Loving Lois it's clear that Superman is not Clark Kent, mm -hmm. right? They're two people in the story. And yet in fundamental reality, they're one person. So you get this really weird thing that one person, one and the same person can in a fiction be two people, mm. right? So imagine like, I'll do this for your Christian listeners and because maybe it makes it easier to do it in a kind of Christian key. Although obviously the Hasidic authors weren't concerned with the Trinity. They didn't accept it. Um, but put into a Christian key. Imagine that God writes a story called the universe. And in this story, God doesn't just appear to split the sea and to 
free the Jews from Egypt, whether he actually appears as three people, mm. the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, they're all him, right? Just like Clark Kent is Superman, and Superman is Clark Kent, but in the story written by Lois Lane, they appear as two people, non-identical people. So in the story, it's true they're non-identical, but actually they're identical. And likewise, you could have God appearing as three people in the story. It would be the case that they're non-identical, but somehow from a, a more fundamental perspective, they would be one and the same person. The mm -hmm. reason it sounds like modalism is that there's a sense in which these are three projections of the same person, perhaps. Um, it's not clear to me whether it's modalistic or not. You'd have to you'd have to speak to a, an expert in the Trinity. But mm -hmm. um, but certainly for the for the Hasidic idealist, it might be useful. The Hasidic idealist is coming from the, the Jewish mystical tradition where you have these 10 spherot and they want to make claims that sound contradictory because they want to say they're all identical to God, but they're not identical to each other. There are 10 of them, but really there's only one of them. It sounds mm -hmm. like they're contradicting themselves left, right and center. But if you have the Hasidic idealist perspective, say, ah, the world in which we live is all just a story, then we can start to make sense of these claims that sounded like they were contradicting themselves. Fundamentally, there's one author. That one author appears in the story as 10 characters. In the story, those 10 characters are not identical to one another. But from some fundamental perspective, they're all identical to God um, uh, in much the way um, that Superman and Clark Kent in the story of Loving Lois are two distinct individuals, even though they both actually refer to the same person. There's mm. only one of them. Mm. That's helpful. I mean, I like I've been trying to like get my mind around it as you've been talking and like going back to Clark Kent and Superman. Like, so we have like the idea that like, yeah, it is only one person, like Clark Kent and Superman, and Superman yeah. is Clark Kent. But yeah. this person, like, um, it appears that there are like these two different people. Um so like I mean, for like a Trinitarian, would should they be okay with this? And obviously, you're not a Trinitarian; like you're Jewish. Um, like to me, I'm like, well, they say that God just merely appears to be tripersonal and not actually yeah. be tripersonal. That seems to me like, ooh, I don't really want to say that. That's right. That's right. So the, the Trinitarian wants to say something like God is essentially triune, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that that means they want to say like, even if they say, let's imagine a Christian is convinced by some of my papers and says, oh, this Hasidic idealism looks pretty cool. Yeah, maybe the mm -hmm. world is just an idea of the mind of God. Still, that God who's dreaming this world into being, that God is triune. That, that it seems to me, is what most Trinitarians are, are going to want to say. However, uh, I would... I would push back. I'm not like I'm not a Christian. I don't have a horse in this race, so to speak. But I'd I'd say no. Think about it. Hold on a minute. Um, on a Hasidic idealist picture, a Trinitarian could say something like this: um, In the story in which we live, which is our reality, God is three people. Mm. You know that's pretty. Uh you know it's mm. not that just it's not just like oh he puts a disguise on like like Clark Kent does and then takes it and then takes it off you know it's no mm. in our reality it's true that god it's not just god, god has three disguises god is three people just mm. like in the story that lois wrote i'm not talking about the world in which superman lives i'm talking about the story that lois wrote in the story that lois wrote superman and clark kent are actually two people 
In the story she wrote, it's not that Clark Kent puts on the disguise and takes off a disguise. No, Superman and Clark Kent are fighting one another in the story. So I think, you know, this is a bit deeper than just modalism. Modalism mm. is, the, is the Christian heresy that that it's kind of like God has three disguises rather than God is really three. I want to say, no, what I'm offering the Christian here is actually a bit more robust than just disguises. I want to say in reality, in the reality in which we live, God is three people. However, um, I understand why the Christian might push back and say, no, 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 this still isn't real Trinitarianism, because you want to say that God's triunity is like as fundamental a fact about God as there could be or something like that. And if that's what you want to say, you'd want to say that even God as the author is triune. Um, mm. Look, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the Trinity. I, I don't think there, are, you know, I don't even think there are good reasons for the Christian to believe in the Trinity. I, I, I have co-authored a paper with Dale Tuggy on this. Do you know about Dale Tuggy? I know uh, a little bit about him. Yeah, so he's an important Christian Unitarian, and he and I have written a paper together where we kind of say you know, there's no there's there's no, there's no compelling argument for Trinitarianism. But we don't need to get into that. We don't need to talk about what divides us. We can talk about what unites us, and there's quite a lot of that. I hope. Mm. Yeah, that's super great. So thanks, Tim. Um, so maybe like, what does it mean to like fully understand like thinking about like the world not existing outside of like God's mind? Um, yeah. So like in Hasidic idealism, we have this picture of like like everything's within like God's mind. Um, yeah, and from God's it, perspective, what does that mean? it's just ideas, right? Mm. So first of all, it means from God's perspective, it's just ideas. From our perspective, it's much more. Just like from Hamlet's perspective, right? He's actually thinking about committing murder when he's thinking about killing his uncle, right? Whereas mm. from Shakespeare's perspective, no, Hamlet's not real. Neither is his uncle. They're all just figments of Shakespeare's imagination. Likewise, from our perspective, we are real people of flesh and blood and whatever. But from God's transcendent perspective, we're just ideas, ideas in his mind. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you were going to ask, you, you were kind enough, Zach, to, to send me a list of things where you're thinking of asking me. And I think I'm going to pre preempt you a little bit because one of the questions you're thinking of asking is like, why, well, why would you believe this? Right? It's interesting mm -hmm. that some Hasidim have said it, but why would you believe it? But there's actually a problem, right? I take it that you're a theist. I'm a theist. We believe in God. And we believe mm -hmm. that God is perfect. And we believe that God is all-powerful, omniscient, omnibenevolent. These are things we all agree. You and I probably disagree about whether he's essentially triune. But that's fine. There's a lot mm -hmm. we agree about, right? God exists. He's real. He's powerful. All-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's perfect. Mm -hmm. And perfectly good. I think you and I probably agree also that he existed in some sense before the universe did, right? We have to be careful how we speak about that because there's also a sense in which there's no before the universe because time starts with the universe. And what do you mean by before the universe? But there's a sense in which God God doesn't rely upon the universe existing. He, he exists beyond the universe. I think you and I probably agree that God created the universe. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there's a problem. And uh, the, the problem... I, I call it something like the problem of creation. In a, in a paper with Tyron Goldschmidt, um, my, my colleague and good friend, um, we called it the really real problem of creation because we were trying to distinguish it from, from other problems that we don't really think are so problematic. Mm -hmm. um, the problems are something like this. I'll, I'll give you a version which is not the really real problem. 
but you hear it put this way. Well, God, right? He, he's, he's infinite. So there's no room for anything other than God. Uh, so how did God create something beside himself? Because like, there's no room for there to be anything other than God. That's a really bad argument. Uh, that's why it's not the really real problem. Uh, being mm. infinite doesn't mean that God fills up all space, right? So there's no room for you and me. It's like the natural number sequence is infinitely long, right? But that doesn't mean there's no room in your bedroom because all the numbers are there, right? So God is infinite, but that doesn't mean there's no room for anything else. Even if you think that God is omnipresent in this very, very um, literal way, such that God is in all space, that doesn't mean that there's no room for us because maybe we're able to be like co-located with God. Maybe we're able to stand in the same space that God stands. So what's the real problem? The real problem is something like this. God is so perfect that if he tried to create something that wasn't him, that something would somehow collapse back into being him. And there are various reasons for thinking that. One reason. Um, you might think that God has such power over all things that the power he has over those things is deeply analogous to the power that a mind has over its own ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So like, Think up a uh, think up an idea of a red flower. Doing it, Zach? Is it in your mind that red flower? <laughs> it okay. is there. Now make it blue. Wow! How did you do that, Zach? You're so powerful. All you had to do <laughs> was will, and it changed color. Yeah. Like, um, I would want to say the sort of power that God has over anything, because He's all powerful, is the characteristic sort of power that a mind has over its own ideas. And if you wanted to make something really independent of God's will, such that it was something like more than just an idea in his mind, you'd be diminishing God's power. Mm. Don't do that, right? Or God is so good that that and anything that isn't God would just be less good than him. So if he made things less good than him, that, you know, he, he either has the option of like not making anything at all which sounds bad because he, he wants to create, let's say, or making something less good than him, which also sounds bad because like, why would you make something less good than what there already mm. is? Right? It's like, um, and this family of problems, the, the basic family of problems is saying something about God's perfection makes it hard for him, so to speak, to make anything truly outside of him. Um, Hasidic idealism is 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 a response to that problem. It says, oh, God doesn't really make anything outside of him because the universe, from God's perspective, is just like a story he's telling. It's in the mind of God. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's great. Like looking at your example, thinking like, well, like, how does God create? Well, you can just think like, like he's God. He can he's a mind and he can think um, these things about. Um, so that's good. Um, one thing you talked about in your work is like the problem of I'm gonna get this the name wrong, but like like Sephiroth, 
um, like, what is this problem of Sephiro? Um, how do you actually pronounce it right? And like, how do you actually respond to this challenge? Yeah, good, 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 good. That that is the problem of the Sephirot. That's the way to pronounce it. And that that Zach is what I was talking about with these ten attributes of mm -hmm. God. They're called yeah. Sephirot. And the problem of the Sephirot is it sometimes looks like polytheism, God forbid, which is a very similar um, criticism to the criticism raised against Trinitarians, which is Trinitarianism sometimes looks like, if, if, if you're not very careful, uh, tritheism. You've got three gods, right? How do you, how do you escape that? Now, mm -hmm. um, if you believe in the Sephirot and you're also an Orthodox Jew, you have to tell some story about how these 10 attributes of God, you know, don't compromise your monotheism. Likewise, if you're a Trinitarian, you have to say how these three persons of the Godhead don't compromise your monotheism. And my idea was the Clark Kent's, my, my, my using the Clark Kent Superman thought experiment was trying to solve the problem of the Sphirot. Not that God is disguised as the 10 Sphirot, like Clark Kent is disguised as Superman and Superman is disguised as Clark Kent. No, I was trying to do something more profound. That's why I introduced the story that Lois Lane wrote called Loving Lois. And I said, in that story, mm. Superman and Clark Kent, who are one person outside of the story, are two people in the story. And I wanted to suggest that maybe for the Hasidic idealist who also believes in the Sephirot, that these 10 Sephirot are in the story, 10 distinct forces or beings or, or even persons, um, but that from a more fundamental perspective, uh, they're identical to one another and identical to God. Mm. Okay, that's, that's great. Um, maybe let's close off with this, Sam. Like, how does like Hasidic idealism like make sense or like invoke mystery into the world? Um, so you're talking about this idea where like, um, like everything including us are like, the ideas of God, um, yeah. we've gotten the ideas, like how does this like make sense of the world, like invoke mystery and reflect on this idea, Sam? No, that's really nice. So, so there are, there are three things we could talk about, I think, when we talk about Hasidic idealism. The first is, what exactly is it? Is it coherent? And I've tried to show you what it is. It's this idea that reality kind of operates on two levels. There's what's going on in the story of the world, and there's what's going on from the perspective of the author. That's what Hasidic idealism is. Second question you could ask is, is um, um, why believe it? I tried to give you a short answer to that in terms of this problem of creation or whatever that could lead you to believe this sort of thing. By the way, I think if my arguments are sound, Muslims and Christians should also be Hasidic idealists, right? This because the things that the things that Judaism, Islam, and Christianity disagree about are about you know the role of Muhammad, the role of Jesus. Okay, um, mm -hmm. but we all believe that God created the world. That thing we all have in common: Jews, Muslims, and, and Christians. And if Hasidic idealism is the best way of making sense of how God created the world, then Christians and Muslims should adopt it too, even if we continue to disagree within the story about the role of Jesus or the role of, of, of Muhammad. Fine. Mm. Uh, so first question, what is it? Second question, why would we believe in it? The third question, I think, is what you're, you're, you're asking me to touch on now, but it's a broader question than, 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 than just what you asked. It's kind of, what's the religious significance of Hasidic idealism? How, would it, how might it change our religious lives if we really believed it? 
And I think there are, there are a few things I'd like to say, Zach, on this uh, for, yeah. you, for you and your listeners. Push back if, if, you, if, if you want to. The first is that um, everything that happens to you in your life, if Hasidic idealism is true, takes on a new religious significance. Everything that happens. Because everything that happens can be both at once complete coincidence, but also the very specific will of God for you. How so? Well, we've got to divide between these two levels of discourse, right? So let's say I write a story. One day, Bill is walking down the road and by complete freak of nature and by complete accident, um, a piano falls on his head. Okay, very nice story, the end, okay? Now, in the story, you could say, well, why did the piano fall on his head? Well, the story told you by freak coincidence. Is it true that it's a freak coincidence? Yes, it's true that it's a freak coincidence in the story. But it's also true that the piano fell on Bill's head because Sam decided it would, right? Because uh, I'm telling this story. So from the perspective of the storyteller, um, uh, it wasn't a coincidence. And, and when I'm trying to explain why this might have a religious significance, it's like, well, like... Um, I didn't get into the university of my first choice when I applied for college. I got into the one of my second choice. And there I met my wife. Now, do I want to say that, oh, it was preordained that I, I, I wouldn't get into the university so that I would go and meet my wife at the second university? I tend to think that people who think like that have a very shallow theology. You know, no, God isn't like pulling the strings in, in that minute way, is he? Uh, not that he couldn't. I just don't necessarily think that's the way, you know, providence works. Mm -hmm. I didn't get into university because the first university of my choice, because, you know, um, the, 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 the admissions committee, you know, had different criteria than the ones my, and, and my, I met my wife because she, you know, but if you look at, if you believe that there are these two legitimate perspectives on the universe, you can say both at once, right? In the story, it was just a coincidence, but from the author's perspective, it was meant to happen, right? I think that's like a, an interesting religious perspective to have. I think also it's interesting to think of the idea that every character in a story expresses something that the author is trying to say. So you could even put it this way. Every single human being you meet is a character in a story that God is telling. And therefore, every character that you meet is so to speak a metaphor for something what are they metaphors for what are you a metaphor for what story is god trying to tell through you um i think that's a question that has a deep uh philosophical significance but you asked about mystery and i think that's the, the final one i'll say is that some philosophers i don't want to get too technical but um some philosophers of language, and remember, I began, I, I kind of began my philosophical career in philosophy of language. Some philosophers of language think that our ability to describe things more accurately, our ability to refer to things is limited by um, the causal contact that we've had with the world. So... I can't refer to trees, for example, unless I've either I unless I have either seen a tree or I've met somebody who's seen a tree 
or I've met somebody who's met somebody who's seen a tree, or I've met somebody who's met somebody who's met somebody who's seen a tree. Mm. And, and in that way, my use of the word tree can be causally connected with real trees. Either I've seen a tree myself, and that's how I connect up the word with the tree, or somebody told me how to use the word, and that somebody had seen a tree, or they'd met somebody who'd met somebody who'd seen a tree. But in these ways, our language use has to be kind of tied up causally to the world around us for us to use uh, language meaningfully. This has led some people to think, Hilary Putnam is the, is the kind of founder of this, this thought, that if you were a brain in a vat, like if you were in the matrix, you'd actually have terrible trouble trying to refer to the world beyond the matrix mm. because you wouldn't be, you'd be kind of causally closed off from the world beyond the matrix. You could try and describe it, but you'd always fail. And even when you try to refer to it, you'd fail because you're not causally connected to it in the right way. For instance, you know, when Neo in the matrix refers to a tree, all he succeeds in referring to is like matrix trees. They're not mm -hmm. real trees because he's never met a real tree. He's only ever met a matrix tree, which is like a, sim a simulated tree. So when he yeah. tries to refer to trees, he refers to simulated trees. If Hasidic idealism is true, then you get this really weird mysticism that might follow from it. I actually don't think it follows from it, but I think a lot of the Hasidic rabbis did think it follows. And it's like this. Oh, my gosh. I'm a character in a story that God is telling. But because I'm a character in a story that God is telling, I actually don't have the linguistic power to refer to reality beyond the story. And therefore, I'm not even able to say truly that I am just a fictional character in a story that God is telling. <laughs> because, mm. because I'm, you know, I'm, my linguistic powers are too limited. But hold on a minute. You just said you were a fictional character in a story that God was telling. And I suppose the Hasidic mystics will have to say something like this. Yeah, I know I did. And I know it was false. By my own lights, it was false. But it was the closest to the truth that I'm able to say. And with my falsehood, I'm trying to kind of point beyond my own reality to states of affairs I'm not really able to describe coherently. And I think in all of our traditions, the Christian, the Muslim, the Jewish tradition, in all the monotheistic traditions, there is a mystical tendency to want to say that however much we think we've described divine reality, we've always actually failed because mm -hmm. divine reality is somehow so much more sublime than what we're able to conceive of, what we're able to think about, what we're able to refer to. And I think that Hasidic idealism gives rise to its own variety of this type of mysticism. I think there are ways of blocking this type of mysticism whilst being a Hasidic idealist. But 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 you can see how it kind of naturally follows. Oh, I'm like in the matrix that God's made for me. Maybe I can't even speak about the situation I'm really in because so much of reality is kind of closed off to me. Uh, mm -hmm. And to be able to speak meaningfully about things, you need to be causally connected to them and to them in the right way. And, and I'm not causally connected to ultimate reality in the right way. So, so like all of my language somehow fails to describe what it's trying to describe. That's that's one part, I think, of the possible religious significance of this of this view, because it, it, it could potentially collapse into this form of mysticism. Well, Sam, you've given us so much to like chew on and think about here. <laughs> um, and I've enjoyed this conversation. I wish I was like 
wasn't I wish I wasn't just like sitting here at like 80% of what I usually am um with this little <laughs> bug or whatever is going through me um because I'm just saying I'm like wow this is just there's so much here um so you've any you, like like last thoughts or things you want to say before we start to wrap up here Sam uh no sure I I think um I think it's interesting for for you, your listeners and, and and others to think about you know why might you be an idealist even if you weren't a theist um um you know what does idealism have going for it I think many religious people, um, I said, if you weren't a theist, and I'm going back to theism, but I think, I think many religious people share this, this intuition with me. Not all do. There's some very well-known Christian materialists like Peter Van Inbug and Hard uh, Hudson, but a lot of religious people share this intuition with me that like the physicalists in this world have like, they have, they have too much of a say uh, over mm. our culture and over and over our thinking, they think you can reduce everything to the physical, and they're so wrong, because like our conscious lives, for example, seem to be so much more than just electrical phenomena in the brain. Um, the physicalist wants to be reductive about our conscious lives, and this could lead you to dualism, which is the view that no, 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 don't try and explain our conscious lives only in terms of of like the, the electrical firing of neurons. There needs to be something else called consciousness. It's something additional to the physical. The idealist says, no, 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 hold on a minute. Let's, let's beat the physicalists at their own game. The physicalist wants to try and build consciousness out of neurons. Mm -hmm. What the idealist does, it says, no, 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 no. Let's build the physical world out of that. Now, of course, if you have God on your side, it's much easier because we believe that we theists believe that there is this infinite mind that already exists with infinite power that creates the world. But even if you weren't a theist, that might be an attractive project. Okay, let's start this the other way around. Let's start from consciousness, which is the thing we know most intimately, and see if we can build the physical world out of that stuff, which interestingly, Bertrand Russell was also interested in trying to do, to build the world out of what he called sense data. Start with the things that we directly um, perceive with our senses and then build the physical world out of that stuff. Um, so that's another thing for your, for your, 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 your listeners, uh, your viewers to think about. Um, I'd also share with them uh, my website, www.samlebens.com if they're interested in, in any of my work. Um, I have a new um, book out called um, Philosophy of Religion, The Basics, that uh, doesn't get into all of this crazy Hasidic idealism stuff, uh, but it tries to to be a, like a friendly introduction to philosophy of religion from a, a, a relatively neutral place. I hope it'll be friendly to atheists, agnostics, and theists of all religious backgrounds. Um, and finally, if, if you're really interested in Hasidic idealism, um, you can look on my website. The art, I have various articles about Hasidic idealism, which you can access for free there. Um, also, I have a book called The Principles of Judaism. Sadly, it's really expensive. It's out with Oxford University mm. Press, but you might be able to get it out of a library uh, if you if you have access to such things. Um, um, the first part of that book, The Principles of Judaism, tries to really lay out systematically what is Hasidic idealism, what are the problems that it gives rise to, and what's the religious, how do you solve those problems, hopefully, and what's the religious significance that follows from it. Mm. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time. I'll leave a link down below to your website and encourage people to check it out there. 
Um, and yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope it's exactly. edifying and thought provoking and yeah, I mean, this has been great. So, um, thank yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate it. My great pleasure. My great pleasure. And thank, thank you everyone you. for tuning in. Um, really appreciate you and your time. If you're new here, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. If you're about your content, um, go consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash you get apologetics. That's it for today. Um, we'll catch you next time. 